Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Communication and context are, I do think, some of the things that are most successful in feeding an engineering organization, because engineers are, I think, generalized problem solvers. We all want to be engaged with the problem and, and then apply a methodology to that problem. Even in high stakes situations, articulate the problem clearly, give people the timeline, give people the constraints and let them rip. And, you know, and people that can do that and perform in those in, in different kinds of environments and be flexible and adaptable are really key to driving that kind of culture. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. We all know that moment, the crash, the unattributed outage, the inexplicable platform failure, or even the unexpected, wildly successful marketing campaign that maybe you forgot to load test, and now your win is an emergency panic. Navigating catastrophe, uncertainty, and building a culture of resiliency is absolutely essential to engineering leadership. Ken Pickering, SVP of Engineering at Starburst Data, joins us to discuss navigating catastrophe. And Ken shares some absolutely incredible stories from some of the catastrophic moments earlier in his career. We cover different practices that can prepare your team to handle these types of obstacles well. And we talk about how to cultivate centralized beliefs within your organization so that they can better navigate and self-manage. Plus, we get into some great perspectives on the challenges behind finding product market fit for a second product. Let me introduce you to Ken. Ken Pickering is the SVP of engineering at Starburst. Prior to Starburst, he held leadership roles at large-scale consumer SaaS and enterprise security companies like Hopper, Rulala, Inservio, and Core Security Technologies. Enjoy our conversation with Ken Pickering. Ken, just wanted to say welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Happy Wednesday. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, to set up sort of the, the overarching theme that I know we wanted to explore was talking about building teams and culture to navigate things like catastrophe, challenge, and uncertainty found in startups. And, you know, when you think about the things that we face within business and our teams, like one of the only things that's certain is this change and uncertainty and the challenges that we'll face here. And so I know this is something that you've been spending a lot of time thinking about, especially in the realm of the right team and culture can deal with catastrophe. So where I was hoping we could start with was what does that sentiment mean to you? And how did you gain that perspective that it's about team and culture to deal with those things? I think one of the true tests of leadership are when things are not working well. I think it's actually easy to be a leader, or not easy, but easier to be a leader when things are great. You know, when revenue curve is going up solidly and hiring is going super well and your teams are performing well, like, you know, to times like that, it actually, you know, you can, you can even sort of be on cruise control sometimes as a leader. And I think that like where companies and teams and groups and, and businesses prove themselves is actually what you do when things aren't going well. Right. Like when 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 there is a catastrophe or there is a challenge or things aren't working out the way your business is planned. Right. Like there's a global pandemic. Right. Like I think it's how you and your culture and your team respond to those things. that actually really, I think, sets the tone for who you are. Uh, Starburst, uh, the company I work at now, has the, has a has a, a core value of grit. Right. 
But how do you how do you test for grit in an interview? How do you even know people are applying grit in their day to day unless things are actually challenging or difficult for them in their work? And then you say, oh, yes, they are applying grit. But actually, you don't even know sometimes you yourself have that kind of attribute until you're actually tested in a lot of capacities. One of my favorite quotes that I, I share oftentimes, uh, it's the one where everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Like everybody thinks they know who they are as a leader until <laughs> they, get, they face a challenge. And so I definitely appreciate that. I, I want to dive in more into like your mindset around this. I, I almost get like a sense of like this hunger for challenge, like this hunger for some of these like emergency or maybe not, maybe not emergency crisis to say this, but like I, I sense almost like a, a bring it mentality when it comes to these types of challenges. Like tell me more about like your mindset and approach here as a leader. I think if you run a culture that embraces risk, then you run into catastrophe more often. And I don't think I know any startup that has gone from like early startup to IPO that has not embraced risk in some capacity, you know, has not like made uh, dealing with risk and pushing through risk and, and dealing with challenges and failure on a somewhat regular basis and building a great company. I think engineering teams have to cope with that. Like I think, you know, if you think about like the the mentality of a typical engineering organization, like we hate risk, right? Like we as a group specifically like design most systems and processes to avoid risk at all costs, right? And when you flip that with like, well, no, but we're also a startup and we also need to take a lot of risk to get where we need to go. Like there's a, there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance between what the culture really wants and wants to feel safe versus what's being asked into to drive the company to the next level. Working for startups or growth-based businesses, I think engineering leadership has to figure out how they're going to do that. Like, how are you going to challenge your team? How are you going to trust your team to be able to come through those challenges and not coddle them to a certain extent and not apply apply the you know the bubble wrap around the organization? Because I think if you build the right culture on that, where you embrace risk and failure, and it's not people's fault if we fail, it's like a collective mission that we're on together, then I think you can actually build a great culture of people that are unafraid to try things and unafraid to actually be experimental. And I think if you hire really smart people that are driven and passionate, you give them the tools and ability to do their job, you give them freedom to explore, and you're not hard on them if they fail, like that's how you actually get like great work. But you know, I, I, there are intended, unintended side effects of that and that it's uncomfortable to fail. And coaching people through sometimes their first actual large failure, like the feature didn't work the way they intended, or, you know, I mean, it's, that's tough to do. Like, it's tough to actually nurture people through their first failure, like their first major time that they've tried to do something and were fundamentally unsuccessful doing it. I'm making a note to come back to that element of coaching people through their first failure, because I think that that's gonna be really good. But I want to I want to dive into a story. Uh, because I know that with a lot of your experiences, like whether that's at Rulala or Hopper, these high stakes, high pressure moments have come up where a bad outcome, it will probably say is, is catastrophe here. So I was wondering if you'd share maybe a story that encaptures some of these, these insights around culture, team, collective mission, and navigating, you know, big challenge and catastrophe. What comes to mind for you there? I always quantify it as just like a complete worst case scenario that you didn't account for, right? Like in engineering, like I think we do plan for a lot of contingencies. And in a lot of cases, like the catastrophe that really surprises you and drives tons of labor and tons of uh, thoughts around how you could be better at it are things you just never thought of. And so like, uh, at, at, you know, at Rula La, we dealt with actually a fairly experienced like botnet syndicate of like not just people like scanning you and messing around, but like someone actually trying to extract things of monetary value from your business, right? And when you run an e-commerce shop, that actually physically means goods are being shipped places, right? Like fraudulent transactions are being made and your order management system is doing what it's supposed to do and telling people in a warehouse to pick a product and put it in a box and send it to a Russian, like a, a dropshipper that's sending items to Russia, right? Like, I mean, and you have, a, there's a clock, like there's a physical clock. It's like, oh, all right, it's happening. What do we do? How do we stop the warehouse from deploying package? Like there's, a, it, it's a full stack thing that you never think to encounter. 
it's like like a lot of the threat and hacker scenarios is we always design for happy path in our software. We don't really design for what happens when people do that. And the downside of it was there wasn't much we could do because it was, you know, customers using bad passwords, right? Customers were using passwords at several sites. Their account gets taken. So we actually ended up, you know, doing a lot, tons and tons and tons of manual effort and then finding a vendor that could actually like do device profiling and stuff like that to help us through it. But when you're on the clock like that and you have like, all right, well, if we don't fix this in four hours, we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit. Product, right like you know th- those are those are really stressful situations like those are things that you know and then there's do well, what do we have to do we have to report to an attorney general like this is a crime right we talk to the fbi there's all these things that you never thought about as part of your your day-to-day work schedule that like all of a sudden it's it's your life for the next couple weeks in those moments where that happens i'd love to know like how do you prepare for from a cultural perspective to switch on or activate rising to that moment? Like what happens before with your team culture or for you to to have that right mindset to make that shift? I think the most important part is teaching people to focus when they have to, like to actually aggressively prioritize and focus. I think there's an innate engineering instinct. Like, you know, if like a production system goes down, they want to debug it immediately. And it's like, well, no, you have to get the customer hold first, right? And I think it's teaching teams to focus on one step after another and rapidly focus and iterate through that process and to not get lost in the catastrophe, right? That you find people that actually can keep their groups focused, can deal with high pressure, high stress situations can deal with the fact that if things are going wrong, that we have to immediately change process and practice, right? And deal with the messiness of of that level of change management, which is, it's not easy. It's, I, I do think it's, it really is a test of leadership to like guide a team through this and get them out the other side. Yeah. So when you're preparing for like that focus and prioritization, like how, how do you think about yeah. communicating that when you're trying to kind of scale out your thought process there? Like how are you sort of teaching or bringing other people into that? I think the biggest part is to just share the appropriate level of context and what the real goals are. The goal is not to address this problem today. The goal is to specifically like rip through and find a Band-Aid in the next three hours. And it has to be the best solution we can come up with in three hours. It's really setting the appropriate boundaries around like the problem space and just making sure people are aware of it. Communication and context are, I do think... Some of the things that are most successful in feeding an engineering organization, because engineers are, I think, generalized problem solvers. We all want to be engaged with the problem and, and then apply a methodology to that problem. Even in high stakes situations, articulate the problem clearly, give people the timeline, give people the constraints, and let them rip. And, you know, and people that can do that and perform in those in, in different kinds of environments and be flexible and adaptable are really key to driving that kind of culture. I really appreciate you highlighting just the power of context in that the type of people within our, our teams and organizations like are, are heavily focused on problems. So when you, when you provide that type of framing for folks, there's a hunger to get in and want to create a solution there. Uh, one of Hopper's most successful ways to promote itself was media. That's actually how the company became a flight prediction company was a New York Times article that featured research that Hopper had done and a lot of people were really interested in. It. We were like, oh, there's a product here, right? And so the unintended side effect of doing media or pushing on, on major outlets is you really don't know how successful or unsuccessful some of these initiatives are going to be. I think with paid acquisition, there's a bit more of a process and funnel and value articulation around those things because you're limiting spend and you know roughly what your payback is for that spend. But in the case of like just dealing with the public, right? You have no idea how that's going to be interpreted. So Hopper, I mean, to their credit, basically invented a holiday called Travel Deal Tuesday, which is uh, during like, you know, the Black Friday week. And we weren't really like engineering just didn't really realize what what was going on. And we were going to like be promoting this new thing. And um, it was pretty funny because like we had like massive amounts of traffic coming in and we had no idea why. 
like, like you wake up and you're like, wait, what's what's going on? Is that and it's like, oh, the Today Show's on. You know, it's like one of those situations <laughs> where it's Matt Lauer, you know, whoever was running the Today Show at the time. Was like, who's pitching this, right? So it, it, it lands and uh, like all of a sudden traffic spiking up, our observability is going nuts. And we're like, well, like this isn't great. You know, and so it, it, it definitely like was like, you know, coming from retail, it was definitely like a Black Friday scenario that we weren't expecting. Problem solving, uh, we were still, we were still uh, a bit hybrid. But we had a lot of infrastructure on premise, so there just wasn't much scale to lean into. And certain capacities, so that 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 kind of situation was really getting creative about what needed to run and how we provision metal internally, right? And there was um, a lot of like, what, what what do we deprioritize or reprioritize? Like, what what jobs do we show? But again, it's like those kinds of situations where you have to act fast because this is where your company has to be most successful. There's a million people downloading your app for the first time, right? You don't want their experience to be negative. So you're dealing with, on the engineering side, an absolute abject catastrophe that is absolutely a business win and success, right? And it's the job of engineering in those cases to like, just deal with it. How do we how do we make our company successful here? But we don't have a lot of time, right? We are literally, every five minutes that passes that we're talking about this, there's, there's, more, there's more in Kafka, right? And it's like, it's a very similar story. And I, and I equate to Black Friday because like working for retail, you would always plan your whole year for Black Friday. And I would say like planning for unintended Black Fridays is like unheard of. You know, like I'm like just planning for a hundred extra normal capacity is just not usually like a situation engineers have to deal with. Oh man. Yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you prepare for something that is unexpected like that? So pre all of this, like when we were talking a little bit about building teams to help endure through this and to, to be resilient and adapt to a lot of the challenges that pop up here in surprise. So like for you as the executive leader of the organization, what's most important to you for these teams? Like what are you thinking about first when you're trying to build a team around like enduring or successfully navigating these types of catastrophes? I mean, I try to hire leaders that are very key to the business context, right? That, that, that care, that care about product, care about building a product, care about what we do. Like they're on the mission. They believe in, in Starburst case, they believe in Starburst. I'd say that's the first thing is just making sure they understand the value prop of what we're providing, right? Because I think the closer you can get to the business, the more you can navigate decisions that are going to make the company successful, right? And you're not, you're not, there won't be like a misalignment between what you're, you know, what you're targeting as part of your goals for your team versus what the company actually wants you to do. And so I think like hiring people that get that, and it can critically think, because I think that's one of the things that really actually matters in, in high pressure situations is that people can apply the engineering acumen of taking a big problem and breaking it down into small atomic chunks that we can distribute and, and grind through is, you know, finding someone that can, st- even at even at a director, senior director, VP level can still apply that critical thinking. And I think having the people skills appropriate to do change management is also, you know, it, it makes them more effective because like at the end of the day, we still have to marshal large groups of people to do very complicated things. And, you know, sort of what I just shared before is making sure they get the appropriate context so they can make the right decisions and drive the right outcomes. It's easier to do at startup environments because I think the mission and the goals are really clear. Rather than being like a meta or an alphabet or something where there's just so many things going on at the same time, they, they run a cloud and they run, you know, I mean, it's, it's for us, it's like we have very clear and concise goals. Our customers are, have a, a pretty finite, you know, a, a pretty finite profile. We understand them pretty well, and so like I think it's easier for us to drive focus and context around that. I think the bigger your company gets, the more challenging it is to keep building that kind of organization and ecosystem. 
I'd love to dive in a little bit more into your perspective around like having and, and leveraging a centralized belief in these startup environments. So like specifically, like how does like having this type of centralized belief impact your leadership or the types of teams that you build or the decisions that you make or the ways that you communicate? I'm sure someone said this quote, but I think all startups are somewhat uh, insane. Like starting a company and doing something in this day and age when technology has been around forever and there's companies that do literally everything. Like if you were, if you wanted to feel happy and safe and secure about your job and like everything you do, you would work for a very large company that's been doing this forever, right? And so I think in general, anybody working at a startup has to have a fair amount of belief in what the company is and does because it is, it is not logical. You know, for us, as Starburst to slog it out with Databricks and Snowflake and the cloud service providers with, with a couple hundred engineers, that's nuts. Like, like, in what universe do we think we can be successful, right? Like, if you're thinking about it from just a pure engineering spend, and they already have a five-year head start, right? But from my perspective, that's where the, the, the belief comes in. Like, we have to believe that Starburst can be successful. We have to believe that, like, we have the ability and opportunity to build a great company in this space, even if we're competing with people that are much bigger than us. And even if everyone tells us that there's no way you can compete with Snowflake, there's no way you as a company can, you know, and that's what's important for me, right? And in, like, I think at the end of the day, it's important that engineers believe in the company because that's what will sustain you through the, through the, through the ups and downs of running this business, through the deals lost to bigger companies and everything else, right? Because if you don't believe, then then you're not going to stick around. You're going to go work for a bigger company because like, why would you take a chance in your career to start up you didn't believe in? And so that kind of thread and context of belief, I think is actually really hyper important to anybody trying to do anything to make a difference in, in any market. The power of belief there it seems like that's transformational to teams, like especially through catastrophe, because like that fundamental belief exists throughout the ups and the downs and the turmoil. How do you think about cultivating belief either within within people that you're hiring and bringing onto the team or sort of in permanence through your current and existing team? Like for you as a leader, like how are you cultivating belief within folks on your team? I think it's highlighting wins, showing successes and never losing sight of the vision right? And dealing with failure and catastrophe in a way where we learn and we are, we are made better by it. You know, like, I think that that really is, is the thing for me is that we don't get demoralized by the lessons or things that failure or mixed results teaches us. It's that like, well, no, like this wasn't like, yes, we, we made a mistake here, but we are going to be better as a result of it, right? We're going to apply these learnings. And we will not make this mistake again, right? And we will actually build a better product, build a better company, build a better team, build a better process as a result of these learnings. And I think I think incremental experimentation and improvement is critical and key to the success in these situations. It's not just about spinning like, well, here's why we think Trino is technically superior as an open source platform to all the other data engines out there, which, which we do believe that's part of our core centralized belief, right? But it's also like, but how do we apply that knowledge? And how are we seeing that that signal is real, right? How are we, how are we improving customers' lives and getting their feedback into the process? Well, our cloud products being adopted, I have engineers shadow deals all the time because I want them to understand why people are buying our software, what they're doing, what pain points they have, how they can actually make everybody's life easier, yeah, I, I think getting unadulterated raw feedback from customers directly and not through like this pipeline of sales to product to engineering to maybe it goes in the backlog is hyper important for building context. And it actually, I think, teaches people what matters, like what do customers love about our product? What do they dislike about our product? You know, and so, but I think the more, the more you see customers resonate with your software, the more you believe because that's a real viable data point as to like something legitimate and real that you're doing on a daily basis 
to make somebody's life better somewhere else. I, I lo- absolutely love that practice. In that same vein, so at the beginning, we were kind of talking about the moments where these teams had to rise to the occasion in these these yes. hyper-stress moments. And the question that came up for me was, what can you do ahead of time to build your leadership capacity for those moments of catastrophe in the quote-unquote downtime? How do you help cultivate the capacity to address those challenges in those downtime moments? Like in the moments where you can't predict, how can you help prepare people to better endure those things? I, I don't think my team appreciates this sometimes, but I will drive an incident like it's critical. Like something will come in and I will drive it like it's a P0, even though it might not be a P0, just to stress test the output of the system. Like what is our MTTR? Like how fast are we getting code to production? What was the time delta to get people online or get people in reviews or get people to vet designs and everything else? If you stress test your engineering operational system every so often, even though, yes, it's a fire drill, I think it, it breeds the instinct that when something happens, they know what to do. It's documented, right? They've gone through this before. And so for me, it's really like consistent consistent drilling and testing in some of these instances, even if the incident itself doesn't merit that severity. And is this like an explicit test or we're saying like, okay, we're going to treat this like it is the most important incident we've ever experienced? Or is it more uh, implicit, like you're just kind of like opening up a surprise fire drill? Like what, what, how do you kind of introduce like this, this practice? So I will drill into incidents because I track our incidents, like I track our alerts channel as they come down and I will pick one and I will usually inform my leadership that we're going to push this today. Usually I do tie it to a customer. Usually it's tied to a specific customer issue. And, you know, I do try to also drill in the instinct that making the customer whole is one of the most important things we can do as like a SaaS provider. And so like I'll tie it to a customer need, even if I know the customer is not like clamoring for it to be fixed. It's still important enough to merit, like, yes, like this deserves our scrutiny and attention and our best effort today. We'll get into pushback sometimes on like the disruption that causes, but I do fundamentally believe that these kinds of exercises will make a team be able to deal with a travel deal Tuesday or something like that. Do you do you debrief like running an incident like this? Are there any insights there that have come up? I don't know if we call that out that specifically, like in terms of highest stress modes. Every incident we do, every every book, every time we run something, uh, there's always root cause analysis. There's always follow-ons and carry items. You know, I track a lot of our SLAs pretty closely, and I'm always working with like our infrastructure and, and observability leadership to make sure that we are doing everything we can uh, to address the bottlenecks that we found. Like if our CICD pipeline is too slow, it's like, guess what we're working on this month. And so like, that's the kind of stuff that usually drums out of it. You know, I think the other part is drawing the instinct for people to step up and take ownership is hard sometimes, like commanding an incident, right? Like usually there's like a finite set of people in your organization who feel comfortable doing that, but usually you're more incentivized to to broaden that out. And I think that's the part that I think is most scary for most people. And we have we have the concept of an IMOC, an incident manager on call, and I think it's low-key terrifying to be an IMOC when something significant happens, but really making sure that those people get the handle of, of the issues is actually sometimes more important than the technical resolution itself. Sometimes being petrified by making a decision or driving a process is actually the largest problem. Because I think with the right leadership, you can actually fix a lot of things, right? If you have the right leader in place and coaching a team through a difficult process, I think you're going to get a much better response regardless of the underlying technical issue. I love the idea of like the exposure to that pressure is more important really than the technical solution, like in having kind of that understanding that you can fix sort of that thing later on, which brings me up to the next question I want to ask you about, which was what you talked about earlier about coaching people through that first failure. So kind of in the same vein, like, how do you think about coaching people through that that first failure? What does that look like for you? You know, I try to I try to set failure in the context of 
you know, it's actually, I, I, it's actually an interview question I ask. Like literally everybody that comes to the company, I ask about failure in some capacity. Because I think if you're doing anything really significant or you're leading anything, you're, you're, you're making mistakes. Like there's no way to actually take on the mantle of leadership and not make mistakes on a somewhat regular basis. Hopefully they're small mistakes, right? But, you know, and so for me, it's just making sure that people understand that as their career progresses, they're going to have to make bigger decisions with less complete data all the time. Like certainty is, a, is, is sometimes, especially in a startup universe, certainty is something we don't have the luxury of in many different cases. You have to get comfortable making decisions over uncertainty. And so I think for me, it's just making sure people understand that. Like it, it's not, you're not, expected to bat a thousand, right? You're not, no one expects perfection, right? What we do expect though, is that people act according to the information they have at the time, do the best they can. And if they make a mistake to learn from it, you know, I've worked with people that everyone else handles all the decisions for them. So they've never been in the position to fail before. And I think it's sometimes like flipping the perspective and realizing that there was at one point in my career when I was an engineer and that was me too, right? Like I, I didn't want to fail at anything. And I, I thought I was smart enough to never ever have to encounter that. The reality of that catches up to you the more you start doing. And, and I think it's just really trying to, to share that experience with them and make them understand that, well, no, this is, just, this is just leadership. Like we all make mistakes and we don't want to make mistakes again. But at the same time, like nobody, literally nobody expects perfection. Because if we were waiting for perfection, we wouldn't be a startup. Like, I mean, we can't, we don't, we don't have the luxury of those, like that timeline of like actually sitting down and getting enough confirmation, customer confirmation or industry confirmation or technical validation to actually build anything perfect. Are there specific contexts or examples of where this shows up within your teams? You know, I mean, every company I've worked at, I can point to things that we did, like the executive team, myself, directors, people more experienced than them with pretty storied careers in some cases, like absolutely made abject, like, like abject failure, like failed, like outright failed, like we made a bad decision. And so I, I like to point to literal examples that people can like approach. And, and I don't think everyone understands sometimes how hard it is as a startup to get your first product to hit and like to actually keep on making features or other products that are guaranteed to be successful. That's nobody. You can look at like journeys like Airbnb and the features they develop, like experiences, I don't think is, you know, I don't think it's doing as well as Airbnb. Like, I mean, but you look at companies pioneering other feature sets, right? And I just want to make sure people understand that they, like, again, it's about context that they have, that they understand it, it's never good. You're never going to be hundred percent successful. One of the things I focus on with our product team is failing as cheaply as possible. What is the thing we can build to get in customer hands and get some confirmation if this is a good or bad idea? Like, let's not spend two years building it. Let's just get something out and see if anybody likes it. And if they do, awesome. Like, we can, we, can, we can build on it and scale on it. And if they don't, then, okay, we wasted a month or two of our time. You know, and that sucks. And I'm sad about that. But we can move on with our lives. And I think it's really, I think if you can isolate and mitigate like the negative connotations of it, if you think about failure, like the negative connotations of it, well, I wasted my time, right? People will think that I stink at my job. You know, and I think there's some amount of self-worth and, and self-reflection that goes on in, in like, well, then, am I good at what I do? Like, whether it's a bot, like the imposter, like, do I belong here? Am I a good engineer? Right. And I think it's just making sure that people understand that everyone else goes through that, too. <laughs> so and it's not as lonely. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a huge deal. And we just we just work through it together. And I felt like you just opened up my brain and read every internal thought that goes through my head in those types of moments. But I love the, the idea of fail as cheaply as possible. and then 
how you just explicitly spoke to the beliefs that people bump up against and, and the challenging sort of internal self-talk. And if you can really speak to that and mitigate those types of things, like that can be transformational in somebody's relationship to trying harder or taking on a risk, which then could lead to a bigger impact. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I want to change focus a little bit and speak a little bit to some of the challenges and uncertainty that folks are bumping into right now. And so I think like the demand specifically is this idea of like this uncertain future company operating a startup, we have an uncertain future and balancing the realities you have to live in between an uncertain future and the demand to execute now. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your perspective there and how you think about navigating that tension between realities. I've been in the software industry since like the dot com boom, right? Like, and, you know, and I think understanding the macro ebbs and flows of economies and industries and technologies is something I try to provide perspective on. Like, honestly, like tech is not going anywhere. Investment wanes uh, based on macroeconomic conditions and what VCs are doing and everything else. But it is like, we are still working on things that people need. Like we are still building things that people will buy, right? Like enterprises may freeze budgets for a bit and it may cause some amount of revenue shortfall and, you know, SaaS companies may have a negative ARR for the first time in their history. And I mean, like, you know, those are very real things you have to deal with. But I also think it's about focus and resiliency too. And that like, you know, I think I've learned in certain cases to be Zen about certain things. Like there are certain things that I can impact and change. And there are certain things I just have to accept as reality and, and move on. And I try, to, I try to help people sort through that in their own personal views of a situation. Like, no, I don't think there's anything you and I can do to fix the macro economy, right? Like SAS <laughs> revenue's down. Everybody's got, you know, inflation, inflation's up, interest rates are up. You know, I think it's like, it's, th th we can't, there's nothing that I don't think you and I can specifically do to fix this situation, right? But what we can do is look at what we can do here and look at what we can focus on here and try and try to do the best we can and try to pivot to what our customers are talking about. Like if, if all of a sudden everybody's cost conscious, then all right, maybe we'll work on some efficiency features, right? Maybe we'll drive performance and efficiency, right? And, and then uh, you save the money on compute. Like maybe there are things we can do in our own product to shift with the downturn. But I mean, it's, um, it's a bummer. It, you know, I think one of the, the worst moments I went through was working for a travel company when COVID hit. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, like going from a company that had like that was, had everything in front of it, you know, and you're burning money, like you're you're massively burning because you're in heavy growth mode. And, you know, I, I, that if I had to pick like an event in my life that taught me massive perspective on the fragility of everything, it would be something like that. But Hopper's doing great today. Like they've rebounded. They're doing wonderful. Like, I mean, it's they definitely there was layoffs and it was, you know, it was tough for a while, but they came through it. I think, a, you know, a stronger business. And so, you know, I think it's it, but th those kinds of moments always teach me perspective that I think you're going to hit speed bumps and you're going to absolutely hit things that are horrible to deal with. But at the end of the day, like if you can actually try to maintain focus, focus on what you can fix and control and try to do the best you can, that you can actually still carve out some success. What a wild moment to be working at a travel company during that time period. Like, that's absolutely crazy. 
I wanted to dive into some of the lessons around those types of experiences, because you've talked a lot about communication and context being so important for navigating some of these sort of catastrophic moments. What have you learned about communicating effectively during some of those difficult times as a, as a leader in navigating those types of moments? I think the first rule is, is don't panic, right? Like, I think that's actually one of the, like, it's a, that's the first thing I try to make sure people are not doing. Like, cause that, that definitely doesn't help anybody. If we all start panicking, but we're focused on our panic, we are not focused on making good decisions. I think it's so we all knowledge that something, you know, incredibly terrible is happening, but we're not going to panic about it. We can't afford to panic about it. We will panic later. We'll process the emotions on this particular event later. But it's really like, it's not panicking, it's applying focus, it's applying methodology, it's applying practice, you know, and it's, it's making sure everybody is, I'd say, psychologically safe through it too, right? Like, I think, you know, management doesn't generally develop intellectual property in terms of code, but what, what is our primary responsibility? It's making sure our teams can function at maximum efficiency in a variety of circumstances, I think leaders being adaptable to understanding, one, the people that they work with and, and what they need in times of duress, but two, being able to shift and be that person for them. Like one of the things I try to project in abject, like terrible situations, even if I don't feel it, is confidence. Like I try to project as much confidence as is humanly possible that we are going to get through it. Because like if I'm panicking, then everybody's panicking, right? And so like I try to make sure my leaders understand the optics of those things. If you get frustrated in this situation, everyone's going to see it right? Like this is the time for us to be like poised, professional, confident, like making sure our team knows that we're going to get through this and that we're actually going to, we're going to be fine. You know, we're going to be fine at the end of this. And, you know, I think that that is tough to do. It's tough to emotionally lock yourself down like that in certain situations. It's not an easy ask for engineering leaders to do that, you know, because we're all human beings. That was one of the, 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 when I first became a manager, the, the SVP I worked for said to me, and this is something that stuck with me my entire time, is he's like, all software companies are intellectual property that comes out of the brains of human beings. Like if you, if you boil it down to what we as an industry do, right, it is extract information and knowledge from people's brains and monetize it, right? That, that, that is the tech industry. And so like if you don't account for the fact that there are human beings with complex lives and, and thoughts and, and desires and needs and wants, uh, if, you don't, if that's not in your equation, then you can't effectively lead a group, right? Like, and, and if you don't understand what's going on with their lives or, or how to actually help them through some of these problems and challenges, and you're just not going to be successful with the role. And that is like, that is like something that always sticks in the voice of my head when I kind of lean into my empathy and try to figure out what's going on. Is that no, I'm dealing with a human being. Uh, and which, which by the way, um, I guess I, I, and this is a side note, got progressively more challenging to quantify in the Zoom years, right? Like following 2020 of like the two-dimensional people that we interact with on a regular basis, right? Like I think it's something was lost in terms of shared empathy there, you know, and which is why I think remote companies still need to get together. But like that's, that, but, but anyway, I, that's, that's a side, that's a side topic. But the, the thing I wanted to mention though is, is that that really is in any kind of situation, but especially stressful situations or high pressure situations, confidence and, and helping people is the primary lift we can provide. Absolutely. So one angle we wanted to explore a little bit was like the challenges around finding product market fit for a second product. You, you had sort of previewed some of those challenges a little bit. And so I was wondering if maybe you could share a story of your experience with a company that has found product market fits working on a second one and some of the challenges that had come up and, and what your thoughts were about that. 
every second product I've worked on has been hard, like really hard. In fact, I think it's, I, I did allude to it initially when I said it's magic for your first product to find connection. I think finding a second or third or fourth or fifth, like that's where I think actually it's, it's that you're a great, you, it's a great company. Like I think if your business can actually do that, it's a great business because every company and, and team I've worked for and we try to do like a second product offering just assumes it's going to be a slam dunk because we had the first. Like we just think, oh, well, we got the first product, second product's easy. And I think that that false sense of security actually causes a lot more challenges because I think there's this belief that it's just going to be successful and it's going to be easy because, because we're already successful, right? We're already, oh, we got so much venture money. It's going to be easy. It's going to be great. You have to go back to the thought process of like really actually treating it like completely separate product and throwing out all preconceived notions and treating it like a like a startup for a second time. Not like the Leica startup the company do, but you really have to like throw everything out and, and I think go back. The companies that I've seen build a successful second product have done that. Mm -hmm. Like we go through this like trials and tribulations of like, yeah, we're smart and we know what we're doing and we try to build it and then it doesn't connect. And we say, oh no, this is terrible. Like what are we going to do? And I think we all go back to the drawing board and we go back to like the beginning. And I think go back to first principles and then are able to do it. But it's a funny journey that I've seen everybody do. And that like, you know, I think that you have to kind of try and fail a few times before you really learn how hard it is to do this again. And then, then are able to kind of get your head around how to do that successfully. When we had kids, I think it was like a, kid, a book entitled like how to have your second child first or something like that. I would like that. How to develop your second product. It's your first product. It's a great book. Someone should write that book. Uh, <laughs> I think that's something that, um, that we should, uh, we should, we should think about as an industry as to how we do. Yeah. Well, do you have any like stories or examples of developing that second product and maybe having to go through a couple different iterations for what it looks like? What's interesting is like, how do you deal with the maybe like the repeated failure or the repeated iteration of where maybe the first idea for that second product isn't a great fit, but it's the next one or the next one. And it's the, the ability to endure and get to that stage. Jump in. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So um, uh, two examples. So first is in my current company, Starburst, right? We built our cloud platform offering and uh, we designed it to run in a customer's VPC, like the compute plane run a customer's VPC, which turned out to be wildly complicated and almost impossible to maintain and like very hard to install and manage. And our customers just didn't resonate with it. And then so we kind of threw out a bunch of work, like, and, and this is after probably about a year's worth of work, right? Like, you know, said, all right, we're, we're re-architecting re several different aspects of the system, then spent about eight months redoing our, our, our cloud product. And, and now it's great, right? Now, now we optimize for the things that people disliked, you know, but it was one of those like preconceived. We thought, all right, this is, this is what people want. And it took building something and getting it to market to realize that it wasn't. You know, but then it actually taught us specifically what the problems with it were, and we were able to build it. it. You know, I think if we had charted a little bit first principle at the beginning, we would have come to the second product first, maybe, right? But I don't think, I, I just don't think that's how company DNA works. Like, if for some reason, there's like this methodology that we follow that, that, that drives us to these kind of failed outcomes on a second product. When I first started at Hopper, it was uh, selling hotels was a total slog, and most of the company was on it. Uh, like most of engineering was on it. We figured, well, we sell plane tickets. How hard is it to sell hotels, right? Like, I mean, it's the same. It's, it's, it's travel, right? And, and you know, and that 
that was the wrong idea to have. We tried so many different things. We probably had like a hundred iterations of that product before we really kind of sat down and recharted first principles and said, all right, like what do people really quantify and value when they buy hotels? And then we built a model around it and then it was great. I think you get lost in trying to make these things work based on your previous track record or history mm-hmm. in product development. And I, it's just, I think it's really tough for people to be successful without completely clearing that knowledge out of the back of their head and really trying to say like, okay, no, like, how should we approach this better if we had to do this over again? Um, maybe the next time I develop a second product, it'll be great. Like, that's my hope is like the next time uh, after these last couple of times, it'll be a lot better. So, so you mentioned some questions you asked around recharting, what the conversation looked like to rechart first principles. If you're kind of midway through a second product and you need to go back to first principles, like what types of questions do you ask to facilitate that type of conversation? It's literally why are we building this anymore, right? Like I think you hit this point of like this path we're on, right? Because you think about if you think about like how product development works, it's like you're on a road, right? And you're going further and further down the road, kind of turns and weaves and everything like that. But you're on a road of some kind. There's a north star you're moving to. It's there, you're in a direction. It's really challenging and going at the foundations of why you're on that road in the first place. Like why are we this far? What are the things that we built this for in the beginning that we thought were valuable, right? Turns out today, customers actually don't find some of those axioms valuable. So we're probably actually just better smashing the foundation and starting on a different road. And that's really hard to do. None of us want to feel like we're losing work, right? And that's like a very intellectually difficult decision to make. But in a lot of cases, you have to go back to the beginning. You really do and say like, okay, well, for this particular product, we thought security would be really important. And it turns out security is not as important as convenience and ease of use. And so if security is a pillar it's not a pillar anymore, or at least like customers driving their own security and their own VPCs, right? If that turns out they don't care about it. But, you know, that's an uncomfortable reality because then you're going to, going to Justin, our CEO, and being like, hey, Justin, we got we to gotta talk about what we've been doing for the last, you know, X amount of months and spending X millions of dollars developing. Nobody wants to have that conversation with people. I think that's part of it too, is like, who's going to do that? Like, who's going to step up and be like, nah, this is all trash and we're going in a different direction. But fundamentally, the sooner people can come to those decisions, the better off they're going to be on their second product journey. Absolutely. Awesome. Ken, are, we, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's do I'm it. Ready. All Sorry. right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I am reading uh, Destroyer, uh, The Destroyer of Worlds. It is a, a follow-up to Lovecraft Country. Uh, which was a book that I really loved uh, by Matt Ruff and um, was an HBO series. Uh, but yeah, I was uh, at Maine, you know, I was in a bookstore because I was looking for like a beach read and I didn't realize that it launched yet and I got it and I'm loving it. So so do you think they'll make a second season based off the Destroyer of Worlds? I hope so. Like, you know, I, I don't know what was up with HBO because I thought I, like, like that series was great. Watchmen, I thought was also yep. great. Like I just, I hope, hopefully they do because I really enjoyed uh, the first season a lot. Okay, second question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Uh, you know what? I will say agile methodology because I grew up in like the scrum, like the waterfall days and the scrum fall days. And I love like Kanban and, and, and more true agile processes. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a true believer in, in fast time to value. And that is definitely something that's transformed the way I approach engineering. Next question. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? All right. Well, I talked about this in the pre the preschool, but I I uh, I am a LARP designer, experience entertainment. Disney doing the Star Wars Hotel has started making it mainstream. So stay tuned for you know more more corporate offerings behind that. But no, honestly, like I love interactive experience design, love writing them, love participating in them, uh, and that is. But it's it's fringe. It's fringe entertainment. So it, it should catch on though. I think everyone should do it. 
I seriously threw around for my for my birthday uh, doing like one of those like murder mystery type parties. But now like our conversation has inspired me to like try to expand beyond sort of like, I would say like the rut of, you know, a murder mystery party, but like, how can you expand what an experiential entertainment experience thing looks like and to be co-created with other people? We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk offline. Right, cool. Yeah, we'll talk offline. I'll give you some, I'll give you some tips. Well, yeah, we'll, 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 get, we'll get this done. I would so appreciate that. Ken, final question. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? You know, uh, it's actually, it's, it's the title. It's the title of a book. It's the hard thing about hard things. That particular title or key phrase has been stuck with me for, for a bit, uh, for some reason. It's like when I'm working on something hard and I pause and I think, well, that's the hard thing about hard things. It's that they're hard. So for some reason, that, 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 that has gotten like stuck in the back of my brain. Fantastic. We talked about catastrophe challenges, building resilient team culture. We're able to connect that and tie that all the way down to second product strategy. So I just want to say thank you, Ken, for taking us on a wide journey of, of topics here. So thank you so much for an awesome conversation. Thank you, Pat. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.